0: It was amazing to me. I mean, they became my... It was almost like a biological connection. Family. You ask me how they treated me. Well, they treated me like I was their very own. And they used to... My sister, she'd come over from the Morgans. And For example, we went on different vacations to the seaside. I think once we went to uh, Weston-Supermare, a seaside town about two hours southwest of their home, it was very very good. The closest family I think I ever experienced were those seven years with the Moors in England. It was an incredible time for me. Ernst Billig
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Come to Life podcast, the podcast where we take a look at our daily lives from a biblical perspective with myself, Peter Brinkerhoff, and co host Larry Sherfield. Hello. And today is a continuation of a conversation we're having with Dr. Jason Hensley in regards to the kinder transport, uh, which happened during uh, World War II. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to episode one of this two-part series uh, please go and listen to that because uh, it, a lot of what we're going to discuss now will be continuation of thoughts and discussions we already had in the previous episode so i work as a firefighter and paramedic and one of the one of the most impactful situations I was in as a firefighter walking into somebody's home uh, and I and I use this when I talk to new recruits new firefighters or even ones that just need to be reminded of the the gravity of our job and that is the trust that we have when we are invited into somebody's home we don't know them we go into their homes And on this one particular instance, myself and one other firefighter walked in and into a home and had new parents hand me their two day old baby because the baby was sick. They handed that baby to me. And as hard as that could possibly be for them to do, they did it because they knew that the ch- that child's best chances of survival were with the people that knew what they were doing and could look after that baby and get it to where it needed to be in order to be safe and healthy and that is a continuation of the thought that we had in the previous episode and so if you'd like to draw the connection between my story and and yours and bring into the discussion Dr. Jason Tensley.
2: Thank you, Peter. So the kinder transport involved this giving up of a family's child, or sometimes children, as in the case of, of Ernst, as, as Larry read for us, he went with his sister. Uh, it involved the giving up of a family's children and the parent was only allowed to accompany, one parent was allowed to accompany the child to the train station. That was it. So you wave goodbye at the train station. Your child took the train into the Netherlands, got on a boat in the Netherlands, got off in the UK, and ended up in Liverpool Street Station hoping to be picked up. You, as a parent, did not know how your child would be treated. And in some cases, the children were used more or less as household servants. The children did not know the language. They did not know the culture. A lot of them came in their lederhosen. And they had to be given English clothes so they could fit in. And in a number of cases, they didn't know the religion. Sometimes they were brought into Jewish homes, but a lot of times they weren't. Like in these cases with the Christadelphians, these children were going to a religion that they knew nothing about. Family that they couldn't communicate with, a home that had different customs than theirs, and a different Religion. And so, in some circumstances, the the families back home attempted to determine whether or not what kind of family the child would go to. I, I was talking to, to one woman, her name was Rella Adler. Back then it was Rella Adams. Well, it was Rella Adams when she moved and came and lived with um, Philip and Lillian Adams. But uh, it was Rella Hudis. When she was in Vienna. And she said that she lived with her mother and her aunt and her grandmother, and they were trying to get her on the kinder transport, and they received a letter actually from a Catholic family in the Netherlands. And the Catholic family said, Well, we would be happy to have Rela come and live with us. However, you need to understand that we are Catholic and we are very Catholic. And so Rela is not just going to be. Catholic, but she's going to be very Catholic like us. So she'll move to our house. She's going to do all of the rituals that we do. She's going to sing in the choir. And Rella said that her grandmother took that letter and tore it up and said, You're not going. So thankfully, Rella was able to get on the kinder transport and come and stay with Philip and Lillian Adams, who were Christadelphians. And that, uh, that was her story, and she survived because of that. But uh, this, is, this is that kind of, of situation where you have families grappling with what, what control do they actually have. Thousands of people are trying to get their children out and to get a house and reject it. Hmm. Could, you really, could you really do that? And that might speak to the strength of
0: their faith. I'm sure, and but just well, I mean, but just like Peter was saying, that that mother handing her, and that two-year-old, two-day-old, the desperation, pure jet desperation, that that must have taken just to yeah, you know, relinquish here. Yeah, uh, this is your best chance. I mean, that's
1: pretty powerful. To try, you know, if people are wondering, I wonder what that would look like. We don't have to look too far, do we? Because we can see images similar to that from just the past 150 days with what we've seen going on, obviously not exactly the same situation at all, but children, young mothers, obviously the mothers could go with them coming out of Ukraine and and going into Poland and things. At least we have some images of what that might actually kind of look like. But these are children being taken away from their families and the families these these parents had to have known it wasn't just it was literally writing on the walls of the hatred for the Jews and, and understanding possibly that they
2: may never see these children again because of yes it's hard it's hard to know exactly what the families would have thought but I think you are right that a lot of them wouldn't have dared to hope they would see their kids again and in some cases they did In some cases they survived one of the women that I wrote about her name was Susie Hertz and uh, she later became Susie Rosenstock after she got married she had said that only she was able to go on the kinder transport she came and she lived with Christadelphians in the UK and her sister Edith was not So her mother and her sister ended up in Auschwitz and surviving Auschwitz. And later after the war, they reunited in New York. And Susie had said that when the boat came into the port and when she saw her mother and her sister, she ran and jumped off the boat and onto the dock to them. So it's a pretty incredible story.
0: Wow. can't imagine what that would feel like. No, I well, don't want well, to.
2: Well, any of
1: it, but yeah, the, that excitement. Yeah. Um, sad. So, Dr. Hensley, how, how did this project
2: begin for you? So it's kind of a, a funny sort of situation. For a long time, I had thought that history was history and it never changed. Now, obviously history, history can't change, but our memory and perception of it does. And I had never made that kind of separation in my mind. In fact, I, I remember once uh, going with my wife to a used bookstore and finding a US history textbook from the 1980s and it was 50 cents. And I thought, oh wow, what a good deal. And she said, well, isn't it kind of old? And at, at that time, um, I, w- I was originally a, a business major, so I, ha- I actually didn't really think about history or that kind of thing all that much or, yeah. or, or historical theory. So I looked at her and I said, "Well history's history, you know <laughs> 1980s, as long as everything that was that happened before the 1980s, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and and uh, she just kind of looked at me and shook her head. And, and uh, uh, as the, m- the more that I studied and as I, as I began to learn about historical method, it really struck me that history doesn't change, but the way that we understand it and the things we learn about it very much change. And that's the difference between history and memory. So I think that that is an important piece here um, for how I got involved. So it was 2015, and I had this, this was kind of the beginning of me realizing that history was more than what I thought. So I went to this conference in 2015 at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum called the Belfer Conference for Educators, and it was about how do you teach the Holocaust to a classroom full of kids? Hmm. How can you do that effectively? How can you do it respectfully? And I went into it thinking, oh, well, you know, I've read textbooks about the Holocaust. I know everything there is to know about it. And I actually tried to correct the instructor instructor a number of times, (laughs) um, and confidence until I realized that that was a bad choice. So by the end of the conference, I went up to the instructor and I apologized and I said, maybe you noticed that I thought I knew everything and, and that I could correct you and, and, say different things, and and I just thanked her. I said, thank you for humbling me. And it was kind of that moment that things really started to change for me, and I realized that everything was more complicated than I thought it was. And in fact, one of the principles that this instructor had brought out of teaching the Holocaust was that history is Complex. The Holocaust is complex. And I wrestled against that at the beginning and eventually came out realizing that that wasn't true or that, that my initial belief wasn't true, my initial understanding, and that she was right. Sure. Uh, another thing that happened at that conference was a man named Glenn Kurtz came and he talked about a book he had written called Three Minutes in Poland. And this was a book about a family film he had found in his parents' closet. And uh, he had gotten the film restored, and it turned out to be from his grandparents' vacation, or trip, out to Poland in 1938. And it was a villi- it was three minutes' worth of a village called Neschelsk. He didn't really know what to do with it, so he gave it to the Holocaust Museum, and they put it on their webpage. And he eventually got an email from someone saying hi, I just wanted to tell you uh, that I was watching your film online and I saw my grandfather in it. Oh, wow. So Glenn Kurtz said, oh, you know, that's interesting. And then he read the next line and the next line said, and he wants to talk to you. And as it turns out that her grandfather had survived, right? He, he, likely would have survived in order to have a granddaughter. But uh, uh, he had survived and what this became was like the blossoming of this community of survivors from Nishelsk and they ended up putting together the history of Nishelsk that they all remembered and traveling there together. And that really struck me as I couldn't believe that even though historians had been studying the Holocaust for decades that there were things like this, these stories that nobody knew and that that was a really powerful kind of point and so I started I started thinking wow history is so much bigger life is so much more complex and I started wondering what other holocaust stories are there that haven't been told yet and uh, uh, eventually I ended up kind of stumbling across the the involvement of the Christadelphians uh, with the Holocaust. I, I had wondered, you know, did the Christadelphians have any kind of <laughs> That sounded really bad. The Christadelphians' involvement with the Holocaust. Well <laughs> involvement uh, with relationship, Holocaust rescue. The kin- relationship to. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, stumbling across I, I stumbled across <laughs> the the connection that the Christadelphians had to the kinder transport. Yeah. And uh, you know, I had, I had wondered if there was some kind of connection between Christadelphians and rescue in the Holocaust simply because uh, I knew that there were a lot of Christadelphians in the 1930s in the UK. So I tried Googling it, and I came up with a paper written by a Christadelphian named Leslie Morell. She had done her master's thesis on Christadelphian involvement in rescue during the Holocaust. Um, so I found that online. And then I found a webpage called uh, Christadelphiansisters.org. And it had one little write-up by a man, interestingly, a man <laughs> uh, called My Big Sister Ursula. <laughs> and it was about how he had grown up with a Jewish refugee in his home, who was his big sister. So I ended up contacting the instructor from the Belfour conference and i said how do you go about contacting a survivor because i know this person named ursula mayer uh, i know the family that she lived with you know based off this webpage and uh, uh, the instructor told me well your best bet is to just start cold calling every ursula mayer in the country and i said that sounds terrible You know, how many could there be? Well, well, to call, though, and say, hi, are you a Holocaust survivor? Like, would you talk to me about the worst part of your life ever? You know, that's that's not going to turn out well. So I said. So I said, thank you. uh, But no, thanks. I'm just going to leave this and not worry about it. But as time passed, I really felt kind of compelled to try and follow it up. One day I opened up the white pages and I looked for Ursula Mayer. And I called the first one and I left a message saying, Hi, my name is Jason Hensley. I think that you lived with Christadelphians during World War II. I am a Christadelphian and I would be interested in talking to you if you're interested in talking to me. And I got a call back that night saying, Yes, I am the Ursula Mayer who lived with Christadelphians. And I would be very interested in talking to you and it was from there that she gave me the phone number of the sawyers of mark sawyer who was her quote little brother mark sawyer and uh he then got me in contact with other christadelphian families that had housed jewish refugees and it kind of blossomed from there wow yeah pretty incredible Given the
0: age of the Holocaust survivors, I mean, at some point, timing has a lot to do with everything, I guess. But if that story wasn't told, if that three-minute video wasn't posted online, some of these stories may have never been told. Some of that history had never been, I mean, in an age where we almost have too much communication. There are a lot of stories like this that need to be told that, um, you know, would have, been, would
2: have been missed just because of timing. It's a very strange sort of thing looking back on that time. Um, the, book, the book is 300-something pages, and I wrote it in the space of of approximately five months, hmm. and I don't understand how that happened or how that was even possible. Like a blur. <laughs> yeah, and it's almost it's weird. i I felt compelled to write it. I think because of what you're saying, recognizing time. There's only right. there's only a certain amount of time, but I I found myself going to bed at you know ten eleven, waking up at two, and starting starting writing, right, and it was. It was uh it was so you, crazy how how things were working. You felt this sort
0: of of urgency, this uh yeah feeling like uh, it's well like you're saying, time sensitive but that there's a
2: deadline. Yes. Like a, like a, it very much felt like that. Yeah, there was there was a lot of urgency there and it's and it's weird because um that was the book was written in twenty sixteen and unfortunately a lot of the survivors not a lot, but a number of them have passed away since then. So it's been it's been uh I'm really thankful and feel very privileged to have met them at the time and to have been able to write their story and and preserve it for their families and and in some cases and what really astonished me uh, in in some cases the families or the survivor hadn't told their story before because they just they felt like they couldn't and so having almost like a neutral third party come and ask them about it, they felt like they could. But I, I had people's children coming to me and saying, "Thank you so much." You know, our mom was never able to tell us this. Wow. And yeah. Uh,
0: Ursula, Ursula,
2: right? Yes, Ursula. Uh,
0: what What was her like? Her, uh, I don't know, energy when she <laughs> when she called you back. Was she? Did she seem like? Um, excited like she wanted to tell you the story or sort of oh yeah uh, hesitant? she was
2: she was very excited and we ended up interviewing her for uh for one of the the documentary shorts that we that we put together um so she she invited us over to her home for lunch and and uh-huh. we so we flew out there and 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 uh, enjoyed that together and then went to a kinder transport meeting <laughs> with her later so so yeah she was very she was excited about it. I think she was excited to connect with uh, Christadelphine again, because it had been a number of years. Oh, yeah. Um, one of the things that she really wanted to tell me, and she talks about this in, in the video that, that we made, she really wanted to share the story because she was treated so well. Hmm. She felt like she was part of the family. And so a- after hearing that from so many of the survivors, that's, that's where the name of the of the book came from. It I was, was about just, to ask you. Yeah, I, w- I just kept being told I was part of the family, I was part of the family. And, mm. and, and so she was saying those kind of things to me. And uh, she said, I want to I wanna illustrate to you how much I was part of the family. So she told me that the Sawyers, so she lived with Norman and Mabel Sawyer, and then Mark was their little boy. She lived with Norman and Mabel. In, uh, in Birmingham and at the time everyone had blackout curtains because you had to, to make it so that the Germans couldn't see any light from for, so that they couldn't bomb any targets so everybody had blackout curtains and the Sawyers had a big bay window and they lived in on a corner so when a car would be driving and a car would turn the corner its headlights would light up the window it would make it look like the lights in the house were turning on and then off like somebody was was like flicking them on off oh interesting so nobody actually was right. but it just looked like that when the cars would drive by so one day an air raid warden broke down the door of the house and pulled out his gun and said somebody in this house is signaling to the germans huh. and he said and i'm going to find out who so he starts searching the house and he finds a 15-year-old German girl mm. in the house. So he's about to shoot her because he says, you're a spy. We obviously can't have that. So he's going to shoot her, and Norman Sawyer, she said, stood up in front of the gun and said to the air raid warden, you're going to shoot me first. Wow. And she said that even, even in her late 80s, she hadn't forgotten that, and she couldn't. Yeah. That, could she you know. was yeah. that she was part of that family. And the warden put his gun away, and he left. Can't imagine the trauma. I mean, wow. I can't even imagine a world like that. How, so she, you
1: say she was 15. How, how long were the periods of time? Uh, so the transports themselves, when did, they, when did they
2: stop? They began occurring in, in uh, 38, 39? Yes. Yeah, so they start December 1938. They end... September 1939, because of the war. Yeah. So they last for a little under a year. And how many,
1: overall, what's the estimate on how many children actually left, you know, Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and went into England? 10,000. And how many went into Christodulfing homes?
2: You know, it's difficult to get an exact figure. I had heard the number before of 250. Okay. I have connected with probably 35 of them or their family members. And so each of the books that I've done records 10 of the stories. There's a scholar named Hannah Ravel kotzen and she did her doctoral thesis on refugees in Great Britain in the 1930s and the groups that took them in. So she looks at the Methodists, she looks at the Quakers, she looked at Christadelphians. And one of the things that she noted about the Christadelphians was that they took in the largest number of refugees in proportion to their size. So that that is not a figure that I have checked personally, but that is what she came to in her research. The thing that I found in talking with various survivors was really that Christadelphians appeared to almost all the stories that I heard were positive, which was striking. Um, Things like, thank you, you saved my life. I was part of your family. Like what Ursula had said, I I heard, I had one, there was one story in which a family bought a bigger house so that they could take in a child. that, That kind of thing um you know there there were some there were a few instances where uh the survivor felt um kind of compelled into a religion that they didn't want to be a part of so there there were instances like that but they were few and far between and and we're and we're talking about a, a time period where
1: money wasn't but yeah. money wasn't really uh flowing at the time either was it you yes. talk about yes, in the book right. the the donations that the friends were making to the different organizations, and, and as, as we might go, wow, that's that may not be much, but at in in comparison to what they had and what that money was worth at the time, that was a significant amount. Yes, giving of themselves. Not only that, but and then taking people into their homes and having
2: another mouth or two or three to feed. And I think that's one of the things that you think about. You know, we discuss the drama and the desperation of the families giving up their children. And I think it's also crucial to think about the challenge of opening your family to a a refugee. You know, these are people that some of them were coming at 15, 16 years old. And you can't communicate with them. You know, how are you going to raise a, a 15-year-old teenage boy without being able to, to talk to them? Traumatized Yeah. 15-year-old boy. I mean, how yeah. difficult
0: of an adjustment would that yeah. be? They're losing their, their identity, their language, their nationality, German, or, or wherever they came from, um, their religion. And you were and I was thinking started thinking about this when you were talking about a few a few of them that said that they felt like a different religion was kind of being pressed upon them and yeah um that they're losing their whole identity they're having to lose they're having to learn how to be a different nationality uh, a a new language and now this um new religion that they i mean there's nothing else, nothing for, i guess for the older kids like you're talking about adolescent and, and um teenagers um that um nothing left to hold on to I mean, yep. it, seems, it seems like they're losing their whole identity uh so I, I can't imagine the adjustment and then like peter was saying the trauma involved yeah. um this must have been
2: yeah a difficult i mean difficult caring for these kids in, in those homes So one of the things that Rella told me and she had come when she was seven she came as i had said before to philip and lillian adams The Philip and Lillian Adams were in their 50s. So their kids were grown up. And they had one daughter at home, their youngest daughter. But she was, you know, late teens, early 20s, something like that. And they decided to take a child on. And so she said that she came and she just didn't really know what to make of them. Because they were old, right? She felt like they were old. (laughs) And... And uh, uh, they were just so different than her family because her father was in Palestine, so her it was her mom, her aunt, her grandmother, and now she came to this this uh, man and woman. They were English, very proper English, was how she described them. So you know, no hugging, no kissing, no no like outward emotion kind of thing. Separate beds. (laughs) <laughs> yeah I don't know and she was Viennese which in, in her mind translated to everybody's touchy feely mm. you know kissy and so she said that that culture shock was really 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 hard for her but one of the stories she told me was she remembers that she cried all the time it's just day in day out she was always crying she was seven And she remembers sitting down at the dinner table, and she was crying, and she looked up, and she saw Philip Adams and Lillian Adams, and both of them were crying with her. Hmm. And she said that that was a big moment for her, because she realized, at that point, how much they cared about her. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, it was a that was a big trauma of the kinder transport and, and it's it's interesting to see how different Christadelphian families tried to deal with it. In uh, what I what I was struck by, and this is always kinda of one of the debates of the kinder transport is what happened to the religion of mm-hmm. the kids. Mm-hmm. Did the families try to convert them right. to their or religion? Or Did they just protect yeah. them? Yeah, and so it's it's interesting to look at the Christadelphian families and at the at the refugees that came to them. And that was one of the questions that I always tried to ask. Did you ever feel like there was pressure to convert? And I was really struck. I expected the answer to be yes, actually. Mm, oh. I w- I was struck by the fact just because, you know, that's that's how it was in a lot of Christian sure. homes. And so I was struck by the fact that the answer was generally, well, I would read the Bible with them. I would go to the meetings with them. So that was the Christadelphian meetings with them. But I didn't feel pressure to convert. It was just, this was what the family did, and I was part of the family, so I did it too. That's, uh, and, it, yeah. and so that was, it was interesting to me. And a number of the, of the survivors told me that the families actually got them in contact with... Jewish agencies in England to try and preserve a sense of Judaism as well. Mm. So I thought that that was, that was kind of a unique piece of the Christadelphian story.
1: You know, in reflection on uh, her sitting at the table and and seeing the Adams, right? Yeah. Crying with her. And it struck me that one of the things that they... That these people would probably also have to do was <clears throat> protect these children from the harsh realities of, of things that were unfolding in Germany and, and the regular, you know, the rest of Europe at the time. And, and, and looking at this, little, my daughter's seven, looking at, my, at a child, my daughter's age, away from her family, a thousand miles away or whatever it may be from where she's from not really being able to communicate with her in anything other than emotions and, and, and knowing the gravity of what's going on, looking at this poor little girl. I I, I can't, I can't imagine. That. I don't want to imagine that. I mean, I guess we don't have to imagine it because it really did happen, but um, oh, yeah. that would actually, in I the whole time, like we've been talking about this and, and considering the, the subject of the kinder transport, I'm not really actually looking at it through the, necessarily the Christadelphians eyes and maybe even seeing that I need to safeguard this child. I need to actually protect them as much as I can. And I don't want them to know what's going on. You know, maybe it's a good thing that they can't read English or understand English. And when the radio reports come on or whatever of these, you know, uh, reports of what's going on as things deteriorated. Yeah. That's a
0: great point. They'd have to either be aware or be wondering what, you know, what happened to my family, just maybe almost assuming that they're gone. You know, they'll never see him again. And yeah.
1: so were they able to, were these children able to
2: can continue communications, either through letters or otherwise? In a lot of these cases, communication continued with the parent as long as the parent had not been deported, or with the parent or parents. Um, that That is actually another piece of the story as far as, the the child's identity is concerned because um a lot of Christadelphian families decided to talk to the parent about whether or not it was okay to bring the child to Christadelphian events you know is that is that all right this is something our family does Uh, and they wanted to get parent permission to do that so in a lot of these cases um communication with the parent continued at least for another few years because a lot of a lot of the uh the deportations really started to take place around starting 1940 1941 so this wasn't poland right so it's right. a different a different situation um germany didn't have the ghettos like yeah poland did yeah that's that's the, what was going on it
1: just we see we see the videos we you know ever since I was a child been watching you know the videos of World War two and these things and and um just the horrors that unfold, and obviously we all have those those images in our minds, but yeah, I guess I'm just reflecting back on on what it must have been like as a as a mature adult understanding this and seeing this and and I think that. That what you're kind of saying there about the the families, like the Chris Adolphin families, trying to get in contact to see if it was okay to take them to things. That's that's a level of consideration and courtesy that I just you know I guess I I assume that I would have just taken them, and I think that that's really great that they did that. I think yeah. that shows a lot of a lot of respect and courtesy. I, I think that's great. Yeah, I
0: mean, well, Chris Adolphin's uh, one of the. Religions that don't believe in the, like the child sprinkling and, and, and you're not born into a religion, it's ultimately yeah. their choice. That would I mean I, I could I could totally see that. Yeah. asking permission being you know probably a lot of educating. Um, I mean I find even like today when you can look look up things on the internet pretty quickly, having to sort of educate um, when asked, you know what church do you go to? Oh what's that? <laughs> what's that word mean? So, I mean, I could imagine them having to do a little education and ex- explanation and reassurance that, you know, if that's not what they want, then that's not going to happen. Yeah. that's Like like that respect, like this is your, still your kid. We're just taking care of them for
2: you until you can yourself type thing. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, that was the ultimate hope. Yeah. The kids would be, re- be reunited with their families at the end. I, guess, I suppose that this is another aspect of it too. They probably at the time
1: you think you may not be thinking okay this is going to be for the next six or seven years this is going to be this is it just hopefully this is over in a year Yeah. Ho- you know whatever yeah what were the what was the the longest period of time that do we do we know that? do you know that like what was the longest period of time that, that one of the
2: children was with, with these families so there wasn't a lot of reuniting that's the thing Okay. So when the war ended, that wasn't the end for most of these kids. So in some cases, when their parents had survived, or if one of their parents had survived or a family member, then they ended up, 1946, 1947, ended up reuniting with them and going to them. So Rella had an aunt who survived, so she ended up going to be with her aunt. She was with the, with Philip and Lillian Adams for about seven to eight years, but in a lot of these cases, the relationships just continued. There, there was no closure in that sense of the relationship. Um, a lot of a lot of Christadelphian families asked the child to call them uncle and aunt, and in some cases like Ernst Billig, he actually asked if he could call his foster mother mom because he found out that his mom died uh. um now she didn't actually die in the camp she died of cancer i believe um in early in the early 1940s but it it was it, it's different different for each each family each child and and what their needs were at the time you know Ernst was only 5 or 6 when his mom died so that was So, in the event
1: that something like that occurred, were these children notified through the families they were with, or was there a government agency representative or something from, from England that would come and say, come and deliver the message? As far as who survived? Yeah, like let's say that child whose mother or father or both, they actually do know now that, Okay, that the they have they have they are deceased.
2: Do you know the, how so those messages were relayed? After the war, was it was extreme chaos in terms of survivors attempting to reunite with people with each other. The difference that children who had gone on the kinder transport, the different situation that they had was that their family knew where they were. The family that survived, the family members who survived, knew where they were. So contact with them was easier. It wasn't done officially through a government channel, although it could have been done perhaps through, like, um, a a Jewish agency. Um, But it typically would have been along the lines of, oh, look, you just got a letter from your mom, or here's a telegraph. Um, there is, let's see, if you want to grab the green book, I want to find it. There's a, a telegraph to Susie Hertz or Susie Rosenstock, the one that, uh, that jumped from the boat to the dock. Yeah. There's the telegraph that her mom sent her to tell her that she was alive. All right, here it is. It's a, I keep calling it a telegraph. It's a telegram. So, hey, the, the telegram, and, uh, you know, you had, you had to pay for, for the length, right? So, you know, as a, as a parent, you would be excited to tell your kid that you're alive and you want to reunite, but you also can only pay for so much, right? Right, yeah. So this is, this is what her mother sent her. It says, mother and Edith well, answer to Flora Hertz. And then it lists an address. Wow. That's it. Wow. And practically
0: speaking, coming, um, surviving, the Holocaust, and and trying to be reunited with your child that was that was taken to England. I mean, these poor people. Everything was taken from them, right? They They they, they didn't come out and they go. Okay, well here here here's your house back. Here's your yeah. I mean that's that's. So, and also, they probably weren't well taken care of um, where they were. So the health could health their health may be poor. So I imagine just just that being uh, for some people sad to think about. But uh, the ter- determination of whether to actually go get their kids or think well they're they're better off where they are. Um, how you know how, how heartbreaking as a parent myself. Uh, um, what that would be like i just i don't want to even think about it.
2: But. there were some times when the kids didn't want to go mm. and that's um, it, it's the tragedy of the situation that if you were only a few years old when you left exactly. the people you would know as your family this in the u k yeah and then all of a sudden you hear that your mom or your dad or your aunt or your uncle survived, and they want you to come move to a different country with them. You feel like No, I already did this. Yeah. You know, and, and it was uh, a Rella, Rella had said that that was how she felt. One of her aunts survived and said come come with me to New York. And Rella didn't want to leave. And it it wasn't cuz she didn't love her aunt. It was just because she had already gone through all the the trauma of changing countries, changing cultures. And now she had to go to the United States and she was going to go back to Judaism. Hmm. So Rella, Rella had really embraced Christadelphianism. And, oh, okay. you know, she she was very involved in the Christadelphian Sunday school. Um, and she she was telling me that she even won awards and all kinds of things like that. and then uh-huh. And then being told by her aunt, no, like, you have to come back to me. And she left and she didn't want to and she may not have been afforded
0: that same opportunity to to practice the Christadelphian and not uh that's
2: again heartbreaking yeah
1: so how many overall continued in Christadelphia?
2: you know i don't know i'm not I'm not really sure how many um i I believe it was probably ten or so okay 10 or under not out of the 35 like that there were 10 I just mean uh there there wasn't a very large amount out of the 35 and I think in total it was something like 10 yeah like that I could find in the in the Christadelphian magazine archives and everything like that okay I mean directly but indirectly possibly who
0: knows yeah the number of people influenced and and enough to to um check into it so and See, I think
2: oh I I think it's important too to recognize you know Christadelphians weren't doing this for the sake of conversion either right like the the idea was it was this recognition that what we talked about in the first episode that Christianity biblical Christianity owes a ton to Judaism Mm -hmm. that it is built upon Judaism and there's a respect for Judaism and so because the seed of Abraham the children of Abraham were in distress. It was time to do something. Yeah.
1: Now you discussed that warden, uh, the air raid warden coming in and yep. doing. Um, so another th- part that we, cause we kind of set the stage for the atmosphere of you know, Germany, Poland, some of those places like, and, and internationally um, going into this in the first episode but one thing we didn't discuss was England had fought Germany pretty violently and horribly in World War I, and there wasn't a whole lot of love between the two, nation to nation. And considering that and having German children, regardless of whether they were Jews or not, German children um, in Germany in and amongst World War I veterans and their children and things, what are, was it any recognition or uh, through anyone you interviewed of animosity from them to the
2: to the kinder children?
1: Which is redundancy right there,
2: kinder children. <laughs> 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 I'm sure there was. I don't recall any instances of that. Okay. Aside from the, the Air Raid Warden and seeing that Ursula spoke german but there was also there was a big push on the part of the kinder to assimilate like they wanted to okay in order to fit in yeah so like i said they came with their later hosen but they wanted to change into typical english clothes that's understandable
0: you know? given the you know
2: how they were Yeah, you know,
0: kicked out. Yeah, they didn't (laughs) for being who they were, right? They
2: didn't want to be German. I think that was the thing. You know, they when I've when I've asked, uh, I I specifically remember asking before if any of these refugees still spoke German, and I was consistently, you know, sometimes sometimes they would say yes, yeah, but but I was surprised at how often I was told. No, and I absolutely never will. That's wow. interesting. Yeah. That's a,
0: I mean, because that's a big part of your your culture, your
1: identity, yeah, is your la- language. It's interesting wow. because my mother, <clears throat> excuse me, my mother was born in nineteen thirty seven, and she was born into a, a German Austrian family. Her grandfather was a colonel in the Austrian army, and um, in World War One, and uh, she was raised speaking German right? and she we know she spoke German at least somewhat and she would never speak it because Hmm. of we talk about the the Jews in Germany he was the other Hmm. and she didn't want to speak German for the opposite reason because she felt like it was almost honoring that side of Germany at the time Yeah. Which is interesting. Mm. But as far as children forcing themselves to lose an accent or learn a new language, it's not the same thing by any stretch. But I grew up in Australia, very thick Australian accent, came to the United States. And for the first little while, it was kind of of cool. There's an Australian kid. But after a while, that wore off. And I didn't want to stick out anymore. And I forced myself to lose the accent. I mean, I really... I worked hard at it. It is possible in a fairly short period of time. And yeah. I, not by any stretch, the same, same story or
2: motivation, but yeah. So in having this discussion, one of the things, and, and just in going through this study, one of the things I think that's crucial to bring out is really the question of why. Why was it that Christadelphians became involved here? And what, why were their stories Sort of unique without this necessary, necessarily like this conversion aspect and whatnot. And I kept wondering, you know, was this a, a humanitarian thing? And and I think in some cases that was probably part of it. But what I was really struck by was how many times I was told that it was because. This group, I was told this by the survivors. Sometimes I was told this by the families themselves that took in the children. That it was because this Christian group believed what was written in the Bible about the Jews. And because of that, they saw the Jews as God's people and they needed to do something about it. Now, I think what that really shows, number one, is that a group's beliefs affect their actions. So that's the first thing. But then, in addition to that, it also shows, again, the importance of contextual biblical interpretation. What we were talking about in the first episode, that, that here was a group that had developed a framework for understanding both testaments of the Bible together and seeing seeing the way that the Bible as a whole presented a picture of the Jews and a way to interact with Jews and a way to feel about the Jewish religion and so because of that they acted and that is what made the difference for all of these children between life and death so biblical interpretation and taking values from the Bible the way that the Bible is understood really has an effect on how life is lived today even to the point of in some cases like this affecting life and death yeah Hmm. I mean that's you know I
1: I think that's a great summary uh, Dr. Hansley. um Look, uh, we appreciate all of your enthusiasm, your dedication, uh, not only to uh, the truth, the the word of God as as Christadelphians, uh, but to telling these stories of people who couldn't tell them, didn't tell them, and some will never have the ability to tell them again. And I think that that's... That's amazing. You've made it to where it's a living, a living history uh, going forward in the videos. Uh, and so now we'll, we'll plug some of the places that, uh, that, that, that people can see this, read this for themselves. Um, we have Part of the Family. Uh, we have Part 1 and Part 2. We have uh, www.Iwaspartofthefamily.com. Uh, where there's video testimonials and interviews and it's it's fantastic they're great. Um and your podcast. Uh you uh, talk about any other endeavors you have? Uh your podcast and so on and
2: yeah. So my podcast is called End of Week Encouragement so you can check that out. It's just a, a devotional, biblical devotional thought it comes out every other week. Uh I also write blog posts for thisisyourbible.com. So if you're interested in that, you can check that out. Great.
0: Thank you. Thanks again, Dr. Hensley. Um, I'm glad that someone
2: is was out there to write to write these stories. These need to be told. I feel very privileged to have been able to be involved with telling the stories of these of these people. It was a it was a pretty amazing thing to meet them and talk to them and, and have the opportunity to tell what they experienced. Yeah, that's so amazing. Such an honorable thing. Well thank you very much. And,
1: Thank you. Uh, yeah, with that, we'll yeah see you next time.